Attention SLPs and OTs with existing private practices. Are you ready to level up your private practice and your life and make this your breakthrough year? If so, join us for Make More in 2024, a free training offered on Thursday, March 21st at 8 p.m. Eastern to discover how to shift from clinician to CEO. During the training, we'll talk about the importance of maximizing your income, adding revenue streams, setting up systems, and more so that you can ultimately work smarter and build a successful, sustainable, and sellable business. To sign up, just visit growyourprivatepractice.com backslash training. Don't miss the chance to learn how to effectively navigate the growth phase of the private practice journey. See you on the training. Dr. Giovanna Staniford is a speech-language pathologist in California with two decades of experience working in pediatric and adult settings who decided to start her own private practice. I got to know Dr. Sandiford in the Start Your Private Practice program, and it has been truly amazing to watch her practice get started and then take off. In this episode, she talks about how she started her private practice, what payment sources she accepts, and also how in addition to speech, language, and cognitive services, her practice also offers IEEs, or independent educational evaluations, as well as expert witness services. Her private practice has grown to over 100 visits per week, and her team is growing too. You're really going to enjoy Dr. Sandiford's story, so stay tuned. I'm Jenna Castro-Casbon, speech-language pathologist, business coach, and creator of the Start Your Private Practice system. And I'm on a mission to turn stuck SLPs into successful private practitioners. If you're tired of dealing with high productivity requirements, high caseload sizes, and low pay, it's time to take control of your professional, personal, and financial life and finally get the freedom, flexibility, and financial abundance that you deserve by working with private clients in your own practice. Join me here each week as I share tips, best practices, and inspirational interviews on the Private Practice Success Stories podcast. If you're a private practitioner or one in the making, you're in the right place, so let's get started. Okay, before we dive in, can you please share your name, your location, and the name of your private practice? Yes, thank you. My name is Dr. Javona Sandiford. Uh, my practice is in Temecula, California, and my practice name is Mellow Speech, Inc. I am so excited to do this podcast episode with you, which is coming at a pretty special anniversary. Tell the listeners, what is the special anniversary that you've just recently celebrated? Yes, we have been in business for exactly one year. I love this. So listeners, you're about to get a treat to hear exactly what has been going on for the last year and, you know, how she got started and how the practice has grown. And I think you're going to be really impressed by that. But before we talk about what your practice is like, can you take us back to the beginning of your career and kind of what you were up to? And then when did you start thinking about private practice? Okay, that's a good question. Well, I have been a speech language pathologist for almost 20 years. I started off just wanting to work in the school district. I thought, hey, this is great. I'll have summers off. I love to write. I'll write books during the summer and I'll just work with kids in the school. It'll be fun. And then my first year out of grad school, it was literally like my CF year, I got subpoenaed. All of my, my notes got subpoenaed for one kid. 
And I had so many meetings with lawyers. I was like, what is this? Nobody told me I had to be a lawyer to be a speech pathologist in a school. So at the same time, what I did is I decided that I was going to keep all of my skills like really up to date. So I worked in skilled nursing facilities. I worked in medically fragile hospital. I worked in private practice for somebody else, a PT friend. I did home health. I basically had like eight jobs at once. It was it was insane. I worked all the time, weekends, holidays, time and a half, time and a half pay on holidays was awesome. So literally I worked all the time. And then I just, I ended up actually getting sick. I ended up going into the ER with heart palpitations. I was having them in my sleep. They were all the time. It was from the stress. So I cut down on some job. Then I went back to school for my doctorate. At that time, I won't go into my research, but I developed something called melodic-based communication therapy for kids with autism. And so that became pretty popular with uh, nonverbal kids with autism. And I was asked to travel sharing about that to different people that work with people with autism. Or I guess now we're saying autistic people I've heard is the preference now. It goes back and forth. Autistic individuals. So I traveled doing that for a while. And then the pandemic kind of hit and that kind of put an end to traveling the world freely. (laughs) So at that time, I was looking for for work with uh, teletherapy. And I also around that time had my, my son, my first and only baby. So I wanted to work from home. Long story short, I worked for this company. I won't say the name because, you know, I don't want to deter anybody from working there. And I was a, a clinical manager there and it was a great company, but I was working a lot of hours, like 70 hours a week. And I was getting paid very little if you actually divide the time and what I was getting paid. And it wasn't my company. And then one day I had a lot of questions about, so I have a human resources certification. I don't know if you can see that after my name, SHRIM CP. It was a pretty hard exam. I studied pretty hard. I had some questions about one of the policies and my boss did like it. And so she said some things to me that I didn't appreciate about my questions. And I, at that same time, saw Jenna's email, you know, it pops up, hey, are you considering a private practice? Join this free seminar. That same day I listened to that seminar. I was in that class and I'm like, yep, I'm doing this. I'm quitting and I'm doing this. And so that's kind of (laughs) That's kind of what I did. Love that. You know, it's so funny. You're not the only person who has said that, that like after a bad day, they either got an email from me or saw something on Facebook and was like, this is a sign I'm going for it. Right. Like I know uh, Katie Brown, who's one of the mentors, that exact same scenario. Also, Tommy Teshima, who's one of the mentors. Same thing happened to her. So, you know, sometimes people are waiting for a sign. And at some point, you just got to be like, you know what, how many more signs do I need to maybe make this happen, right? So you had this like really, you know, bad situation happen with your employer. You're like, I'm done with this. Like, I can do this for myself. Signed up for my program. And what happened next? So I signed up for the program and I just wasn't really sure, you know, what I was going to do. I knew I wanted to do teletherapy. So I'm in California. And so California is very specific about things like non-compete clauses. You can't put them in contracts. So I was leaving the company and quite a few of my clients wanted to follow me. So I kept some of them with, you know, my previous employers. Like, why don't you stay? Because I didn't, I don't know if I don't put this, but I'm not sure if I wanted to see, see those. <laughs> Once, you know, like the good thing about being your own boss is like you get to pick which ones you want to work with. So I talked to my employer and I told them, hey, these ones are following me, just letting you know. And they were like, okay, because I mean, I, you know, I kind of put the law out there in California, you know, you can't stop someone from gainful employment. So that kind of just started with four or five of my own clients came from, they followed me from my previous job. 
And then I just started like with the website and all the different things that you you had in your class. I just wasn't really sure. I started with the credentialing, didn't go well, didn't like my credentialing company, got my money back on that one. And I said, you know what? I used to work in the school districts and I know a lot about that. I know special ed law backwards and forwards. I'm going to try and go and be in the school districts. So in California, you have to have a non-public agency most of the time to do that. So that process was quite lengthy and quite hard, but I did that and I started doing independent educational evaluations for my school district. I got a specialization in AAC, (laughs) even though I'd done a lot of those in the past, I felt like if I added that ATACP after my name, which is not there, that it would, you know, give me some extra credibility. And I ended up taking on the cases where the school district was getting sued for different reasons, you know? And so they needed to show a good faith effort that they were going to provide services that were appropriate with, you know, fair and appropriate public education with somebody independent and everything. And I had a lot of degrees. And so families, you know, they usually were like, okay, we'll let this person assess us. And they took me, you know, they took me at my word. Whoa, I've got a doctorate. They took me at my word. So I just, I really enjoyed doing that. I met a lot of really great families that didn't know what to do for their nonverbal children. And, you know, my doctorate was a a specialty in uh, nonverbal autism. So I saw a lot of little ones who just weren't speaking at all. They had no words, but they had so much to say. I will share a really quick story with one of them. I went into the classroom, you know, he was hitting himself. He had a helmet on. He had you know, padding all over his entire body, this poor little boy. And he was so frustrated. He would just bang his head on the ground when he couldn't communicate. He would hit himself with his elbow. Anything that he could hit, he would hit except for people. He really just wanted to walk around the classroom, but they wanted him to stack blocks and do all these different things. And so I normally just observe the first time. I don't usually go in and, and, you know, trial systems right away. I like to see what's going on. But I saw how frustrated he was. So I just pulled up like the AVAS app, something simple. And just like, you know, had the walk icon on there. And I was like touching walk. I had him touch walk and he touched it and they let him walk. His face lit up. So he kept touching it. And afterward, you know, they just kept letting him walk because he wanted to walk. And so afterwards, he came up to me. I, I mean, I didn't even know he really knew I was there. Sometimes, you know, individuals that are autistic, you can't really tell if they see you. But he came over and he like took my little notepad that I had up like this as I was taking notes and he pulled it down and he just looked up at me and he smiled. And his mom was so grateful, you know, she was so grateful, like, thank you for helping my son, you know, I, you know, I don't know what to do for him, he's so frustrated, he used to talk, but he doesn't, you know, sometimes they have that regression where they lose the language, which I think is, is really unfortunate when they talk and then they, they can't. So I just really got to start doing that. And that's kind of where it was, my first, I think, four months was a lot of IEEs and you can charge like $2,000 for those, for each IEE. So I did a lot of that. And then after a while, I ended up getting a contract with the state of California for early intervention. That took a long time. (laughs) It was a very lengthy process. And then once I started doing that, I, you know, I got so many referrals after I built up relationships with the different coordinators that I thought, well, let me bring on some help. And that's kind of like where I just kept bringing on help until I was like, okay, I've got enough help now. I'm just going to have to start turning people away. I, I'm sorry, we can't see your, I really want to help your child. And I know you can't find anybody, but we can't be the ones to help you right now. <laughs> so that's kind of how it grew so quickly. I think that answered your question. I felt like I went off on a tangent, but no. That was fantastic. And that's one of the things about California, too, is like the, with early intervention, like the whole regional center thing. Right. And yeah. you can get lots of, of referrals from your regional center. So listeners, 
if you live in California where there's a couple other states that, you know, for some reason I can't think of the other states, but there's lots of other states where they have this whole regional center situation. I think Illinois is another one. It can be a really nice way to get referrals into your private practice and you are operating as a contractor through the regional center, which is a really awesome situation. Yeah, I think every almost every state has that federal law for early intervention. I just don't know if it's called regional center, you know, so they might have to just search early intervention, speech therapy providers become a vendor. But I know it's like there's a federal law too, but California is one of the more strict states, you know, where we offer a lot more services. So you're absolutely right. It is a good way to get referrals. It's just kind of tough to get in depending on the regional center. So you just have to look at where you are basically. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I like, I mean, I like lots of what you said about your story. I think it was interesting, just the connection between, you know, when you were back in the schools, right, like your earliest job, and there was the whole legal situation, right? And you were like, oh, my goodness, like, I don't want to have to deal with this. And then all think about that, (laughs) you chose actually to do that. But because it was like your own choice, you knew the players, you knew the system, you knew how to help families in that position. Like, How kind of cool that you were able to take what was probably a pretty scary situation as, you know, a young clinician. But now that you're like an established clinician with experience, you were able to take your knowledge and expertise and really help your families, but also really help yourself. That's true. I didn't even think about that. That's a great parallel. Yeah, that's pretty cool. You should celebrate that. Okay, cool. All right. So you started taking clients, you know, getting clients from IEs, from, you know, the regional center started hiring people. And all of this has happened in the last year, right? So, you know, when you first got started, what would you say was your goal for your private practice when you like when you first started it? Well, I basically had told my husband, hey, I think I just want to have 10 kids total that I will see. And then that way, you know, that'll replace my school district income, you know, enough, you know, pretty close. And then I can just, you know, spend the rest of time with my son and family and have a lot of freedom. And that was my goal. <laughs> I was going to just have 10. So that, so that was the goal. That. I was going to have yeah. 10. But like, but how many families have you served over the last year? Uh, we've served over 500 families. And we currently now have this week about to hit close to 100, 100 sessions a week. So... <laughs> So that that's pretty different than 10, right? So I I'm also just want to celebrate that and highlight for people that sometimes, like you have this initial goal, you just want to see a handful of clients, like 10's a pretty solid number, right? And I love when, when people talk about doing the math. First of all, I think it's really important for people to do the math and figure out how many clients do you need to see to meet your financial goals, right? Whatever those are, right? Whether it's replacing your income, whether it's, you know, paying your student loans, whether it's, you know, paying for trips for your family, like whatever it is that your, you know, financial heart desires, right? But doing the math first, right? But then sometimes what happens and what has happened to a lot of people during the pandemic is their practices grew a lot faster than they anticipated because of the need for services. Would you say that that was part of the issue that helped your practice grow? I definitely agree with that. I'm seeing so many kids that are between the ages of zero and three who are delayed just not necessarily because they have a delay, but because they haven't been around anybody other than the parents. And most of the times they're just sitting at home watching TV or something, you know, so they haven't really had that peer interaction. So there's a lot of them that are delayed. And then I've had families that are saying they've been waiting six months to a year for a speech pathologist to work with their child, you know, with their two, three-year-old. And that's a long time when you have a little one like that. So any provider that pops up, a lot of families are willing to pay out of pocket even 
just to get services to start. I had one family that, you know, they qualified with the regional center and they were going to start in two weeks. And they're like, hey, can we pay you out of pocket to start next week? Like, I don't know if that's necessary, but they were so eager and there really is that need and there is just not access to care like there was before the pandemic. I think a lot of people in the schools have also quit. You know, they maybe don't want to put themselves at risk. That's what happened with my AAC position. The, the AAC specialist at the school, she just up and quit, you know. She didn't do it anymore. So they had no one to do any of those evaluations. So I not only had the high profile cases where people were maybe suing, but I also had some of the ones that were just, they had no one to do the assessment. Yeah. So it's all about filling the void, right? Or filling the gap, right? If there's a gap in, you know, available services, and if you are willing to come in and fill that gap, right? Not only does that help the clients, the community, you know, whomever needs to be seen, But it can also fill your own gap in terms of, you know, what do you need in terms of your, you know, fulfillment, right? Your, you know, flexible schedule, your finances, all of those kinds of things. And so, you know, listeners, there's a huge need for us right now. And if you have, you know, the time, if you have the inclination, if you have the willingness to step in and help, like you could literally be the answer to a family's prayers who are looking for somebody like to help them. Yes, that is absolutely the truth. With the staff that I brought on, I actually just had someone after one session email me and say, hi, you know, Mr. So-and-so came into our home. It's only been one session, but we're just so grateful for him. It's been so great already. We can tell that our son really takes to him and we're excited to see what's, what's to come, you know? And so that also made me feel really great about hiring people because at first I was kind of like, oh, this is a lot of people to manage. I don't know. It'd be easier just me. But when you hire people, then you're able to offer more services and the services are needed. And you have the opportunity to be the boss that perhaps you needed, right? Or like, I know for me, any, you know, I have a staff who works for me also, and I love being able to do things for them that when I worked for other people, like weren't offered to me, weren't even an option, weren't considered, right? Because there's a quote that I'm going to totally butcher, but it's something like, you know, <laughs> don't leave jobs, they leave bosses, Right. And so I think that, you know, if you're able to be, you know, a a good boss for somebody like people love that, they respect it. And that's how you get that longevity. Right. But a lot of SLPs in particular go into private practice and they think, well, it's just going to be me. Like, I don't want to have people. I just want to be a solo practice. But then again, demand increases and you have to kind of figure out, you know, if the only way to meet that demand is is to hire people in a lot of cases, right? That's true. One of the things that I push at my company is creativity, flexibility, and choice. So pretty much everyone works from where they want, whether it be home or whether it be virtual or whether it be in the client's homes. They also pick their own schedules. You know, they can work any day of the week that they want at any time that the family is willing to work. We did have one family that wanted someone to come at seven. Like, well, I wouldn't want to work at that time. But if your clinician wants to, then that's up to them, you know. And so that's something I always wanted was just that ability to choose my own schedule. I remember while I was working at Kaiser, I couldn't even get time off to get married. Like, I was like, there, you know, it was like seniority is like, oh, you're not up at the top. You can't have that time off. I'm like, well, see you then, you know. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) bye-bye. So I just don't want to have a workplace where, where people feel trapped, you know. So that's my goal. Yeah. Well, and today's employee really appreciates that and is looking for that, right? Like, you know, this whole, you know, great resignation 
situation that, you know, we've heard a lot about and that is, is really still happening. I saw an article the other day. Of course, we all know that, you know, toward the beginning of COVID, there was a huge exit, you know, from the workplace, the whole great resignation thing. But there was a, um, a statistic that like, which again, I'm going to butcher and not say this correctly, but somewhere like 60% of people are still thinking about leaving their jobs, right? People who haven't left are still really thinking about it and like thinking about the right time, right? And so, you know, I had another guest on the podcast a couple of weeks ago who has had, who also has a large staff and has had tremendous longevity of people working for her because of exactly the same situation that you just said, right? Like people can choose their hours. People can choose how they work and when they work. And again, people are really looking for that. I agree. And for myself, I mean, longevity is is huge. I did set up an exit plan for myself because I thought, well, I don't know if this is going to work. So I initially just posted all positions as flexible and short term. <laughs> we'll see if people stay or not. But in the position posting, it does say flexible short term. So love that. Well, again, when you're the boss, you get to decide, right? You get to decide those kind of things. And and you also learn about it, right? Like there, you know, probably someone will leave and then you'll be like bummed about that or maybe you won't be. But you know what I mean? Like you when that's the thing when you hire people is that it's always a learning experience and, you know, you, you get better at hiring over time or I know I've gotten better at it. One of the things I was going to ask you, too, is this is a question that listeners are always curious about, which has to do with payer source. So what sources of payment do you accept and why? I mean, in terms of private pay? Right. Like, I remember at the beginning, you were talking about, like, a situation with the insurance credentialer and that insurance wasn't, you know, oh, yes. looking out. So what did you decide to do instead? Right. So as I was going through the credentialing process, I was reading a lot of comments on the board on the Facebook board about people complaining about not getting reimbursed or taking a long time. And I also remembered working for private practices and just, you know, in one case, it was like $10,000 that that they didn't pay us, you know, and the family wouldn't pay either. So we were out. And I just said, you know, I don't want to go with insurance. I just, right now, I don't want to go with insurance. I decided that you know, the school district, we would have a contract and they would pay according to the contract or they would be in breach of contract. And I like that. Um, the same thing with the state, you know, we have a contract and we provide the services. They pay according to contract or they're in breach of contract, you know. So I wanted to, to have sources that were sure. And then also private pay, you know, we collect payment at the time of service or they don't come back, you know, and then we're only out once. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, we can't see you without payment being, you know, paid at the time of service. So that's pretty much how I decided to do it, whether or not we accept insurance in the future. Right now, we don't need it because we're turning away referrals. We have more referrals than we can see. If I had endless funding, I could probably hire 100 people and, and fill their caseloads. You know, I kid you not. <laughs> Yeah, because there's such a huge need, y'all. And it's it's pretty incredible for those of us who are willing to to step in and help out and, you know, take the chance. And a lot of times, again, people who have started their private practices during the pandemic are off and running, right? There's, you know, a lot of concern, I think, still. And now, now you know, we've had the pandemic and now there's, you know, talk of recession. And I think people are still kind of you know, worried is now still a good time to start a private practice. And and the answer is, as long as there's people with need, 
right? You will have clients. That's true. And I also think that COVID did create more of a need as well. So even with things like long COVID, you know, that brain fog, that's something we can work with as well, cognitive skills. So I do think that it is a good time to start a private practice. The only thing I would say that I would caution something I learned, and probably if I'd taken your grow class, I might have... I might have known this, but I was like, oh, I'm good. I have a human resources certification. I know, I know how to do all this stuff because like, I, I took that class. And anyway, so um, I would say just a caution on how quickly you hire because just, you know, you do have to pay in the gap. So there's like that whole accounts receivable. We were good until I made an error. And unfortunately, I said I did not hit submit. I say I hit submit. They said I didn't. Now I know to put the confirmation number down next to the billing invoice. But anyway, it was like $20,000 that was delayed. And I don't know, maybe you have that kind of money around, but I didn't like have that kind of money lying around to just pay people like $20,000. We were delayed on that payment. I would say just, you know, a little caution to, to have a little extra, you know, not make it too tight when you're hiring. That's one thing I would have would have liked to just make sure I had at least two two months wages in place before I hire anybody, not just one month, but two months. I think that that the general kind of rule of thumb is to have two to three months worth of operating expenses, right? Which is, you know, payroll and everything else. And so, but it takes a while to build to that, right? Like you're still in your first year of private practice, right? And so sometimes it takes a little while to get to that level, right? But the thing that, that you said about, you know, the not the forgetting to hit submit or, or that you'd hit submit, but, you know, whatever happened with the submit button, right? You learned a lesson. Right. And I think that that's one of the things that I see all the time is people say that they're afraid of making a mistake. Right. But what if I make a mistake? And it's like, you got to make a mistake. Right. Like you're, yeah. you can't prevent you from making. Have you ever made a mistake doing therapy? Have you ever made a mistake telling a parent something that you shouldn't have told them or they took it the wrong way or like whatever else? Yeah. <laughs> yes. You learn from that mistake. Yeah. So, yes. Know, when you have a, a, especially like a billing mistake, that's the one that people get really nervous. Yeah. Like, you know, am yeah. I going to go to SLP jail, right? No. <laughs> what you're going to do is you're going to resubmit it, right? Or you're going to, you know, you're going to be able to, you know, call the person on the line and like, you know, explain what happened. And, you know, you're going to learn how to not do that mistake again, right? That's the whole thing again. <laughs> exactly. I agree with that. I think being afraid to make mistakes is not a reason not to do it. And just so you know, like a happy ending to that story, we ended up getting a Kiva loan. It was like funded in like five days and the money was in the bank in two days after that. And so there went that payroll. <laughs> I had it after all. But yeah, I would, living my faith is great. But um, I also would have liked to have been a little bit, you know, more forward thinking with, hey, I might make a mistake. Let me have two to three months on hand of, you know, payroll expenses. So yeah, again, we all make mistakes. We all learn from, well, we don't all learn from them. That's the thing, right? Like if you make a mistake and you learn from it, that's all good, right? But sometimes, you know, whatever, people don't learn. But that, as an aside, what would you say, so you just completed year one of your private practice, right? You went from just a handful of clients that you were able to break from your previous employer to serving over 500 clients. And now you have 100 sessions a week, which is really tremendous growth in one year. What do you think year two might have in store for you? I feel like that's something that I'm going to have to really uh, devote some time in prayer to. <laughs> the reason why I say that is because, well, the really cool thing is I was able to hire a practice manager and a scheduling assistant, and that took a lot of the burden off of me in terms of managing the schedule and managing the practice. My goal going forward 
would be to have myself see fewer clients because I still have a full caseload of my own and I manage the company. So I think having fewer clients and building up some, you know, capital, like you said, like just really getting that income and then being able to hire a billing assistant would be awesome. You know, somebody to take on a few more of those hats that I wear. And then if we do build up enough income to hire more people, we can provide more services. You know, there's really no reason to stop if there's still a need. I just learned, you know, like certain things happen when you have over 26 employers or employees, not employers, 26 employees in California. I just dodged. Well, I'm not going to say what happened, but yeah, as you start to get more employees, you have to provide more supports in terms of uh, paying people different things. So I think I want to hire more, but I just need to maybe speak with a lawyer and make sure that everything's aligned. So my main goal right now is to decrease my caseload because it's a lot. Like even today, before I spoke with you, I was working almost all day on things with the the business. So I think that's one of the main goals that people, you know, start to think about is how do I start to get out of the day-to-day as much, right? And there's some people who definitely want to do less therapy. There's other people who love doing therapy and want to be able to delegate all of the non-therapy stuff, right? The running the business type of things, right? And and you can make that decision, right? But I think a lot of people kind of feel like, you know, the whole taking off hats, right? You know, when you first start your business, it is completely normal to wear all the hats, right? Like you do the billing, you do the treating, you do the marketing, right? You do everything. But at some point, you really do have to take off some of those hats But it's all about kind of, you know, which hats do you take off in what order and like what is your zone of genius, right? There's some people who are really organized, right? And so some people end up doing their billing for longer than other people because they're good at it, right? And so you kind of have to think about what is your zone of genius and what shouldn't you be doing for the company versus maybe what are you doing? Because there are some things that like someone has to do it, but it doesn't necessarily have to be you. That's so true. I agree with that. Yeah. Well, I really enjoy hiring people. <laughs> That's my favorite part right now. I love meeting the, the different people, um, asking them questions, interviewing them, and just saying, hey, this person's going to be a really good fit. And I've learned to listen to my gut. There's been a couple of people I'm like, mm, I don't have a good feeling, but they were you know, referred by a friend. And I've learned that that little gut feeling like, hey, you got to listen to that. There's a reason. So I don't know. I, I really enjoy that part. And since we have a need for more staff, I would love to keep hiring. (laughs) Can I share a book that I really like about hiring? Let me sure. I think you might have shared it with me, but let's share it with the group because I remember you posting. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I looked up the synopsis after you shared it. Go ahead. This is a really, really good book called Hiring for Attitude by Mark Murphy. It was recommended to me by um, a fellow business owner. And it's really about thinking about like the core values of your company And what is someone going to be successful in your business versus like another business, right? So it really helps you change the interview questions that you ask to make sure that it's not just like kind of those basic questions, you know, what are your strengths and weaknesses and blah, blah, blah. But you're really asking questions that are going to help you determine, is this person going to be successful in this role versus just, you know, filling a position or like a warm body or whatever people warm say. body I was gonna say warm body yeah yeah exactly I love so, it I'm gonna get that book yeah it's, can... it's a good one so yeah those of you who are listening Actually, at the stage who need to hire 
Hiring for Attitude is a really good book. I, I actually, <laughs> the friend who recommended it to me recommended it and I read it hours before my latest hire. There was four interviews and I read the book like in two hours as quickly as possible. Wow. I completely changed the questions that I was going to ask from the ones that I had. And we ended up hiring an amazing person. Shout out to Rachel Bacaris. Rachel, it was your interview. Okay, cool. You got the job because because <laughs> you're amazing, first of all. But also the the questions were um, much more geared toward hiring the right person versus just, you know, someone who could do the job. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I looked up, you know, I didn't read the book, but I looked up the synopsis after you recommended it. And for our scheduling assistant position, we had like over 250 applicants. Couldn't interview all of them, but I definitely did modify some of my questions. And we found somebody pretty awesome who I probably wouldn't have hired initially. Like he wasn't my first thought, but um, he's been really great. So Shane Ward, shout out to you. <laughs> Is it how cool is it that we get to give shout outs to these amazing people who are, you know, they're helping our businesses, they're helping our clients or helping, you know, they're a part of our lives now. And it feels good, doesn't it? I agree. Yep. Yeah, I love it. OK, so before we wrap up, is there any last minute advice or lessons learned that you would like to share with our listeners? I mean, there are so many things that I feel like I've learned along the way. I would recommend, you know, for people who are brand new to take the class because this isn't my first private practice. I had a private practice in my 20s that didn't make it past the first 2008 crash. It was an actual brick and mortar practice and we didn't make it. We shut down. It was with a PT friend. But this one, I don't even have an office. You know, I work out of my home and I got that from Jenna's class. So I think the class is really helpful and I'm glad I took it. So I would say take that class. Um, a lot of people have emailed me or like messaged me on Facebook. How did you do it? And I'm like, well, just take the class because I feel like the class really covers a lot of different things. And it was a really good idea just to start out of your your home office doing doing home-based and virtual. Why not? Why do we need a building, you know? Save on that overhead. That's right. I know it's so interesting. People, you know, there's that statistic. I think Michael Gerber came up with this in his book, The E-Myth, that, you know, most businesses fail within five years, right? This is like yeah. a going kind of common knowledge, right? And that is true of professions where there's a lot of overhead, right? So like if you're going to start a coffee shop, if you're going to do a food truck, a retail establishment, all of these kind of other things, like those are the businesses that you have to put, you know, a hundred thousand dollars, five hundred thousand. You know, you have to put in a ton of money and sell a lot of coffee, a lot of bracelets, a lot of whatever it is, in order to make up that money. Right? The way that we can start our private practices is, you know, with the degrees we already have, with the skills and knowledge that we already have, you know, with with a computer and Zoom. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's pretty incredible that we can start with such minimal overhead and be profitable from the very beginning. We are so different than almost any other profession in terms of how quickly and affordably we can start our own businesses. Exactly. I would say my biggest expense is payroll. But then again, that money is coming, right? Because I'll share these numbers. I know some people don't share I and mean, I may regret this later on, but we usually get reimbursed a certain amount and I usually pay staff about 50% of that reimbursement. So I know the money is coming. It's just like upfront when you hire so many people, you've got to pay them before you're reimbursed. So again, that would be the advice is just to have, the, have those funds or go a little slower maybe. Yeah. I love it. But again, you've you've lived and learned, right? Now you're building cash reserve, which is a really, really good idea. So 
again, listeners, if you're listening about this and you're always need to kind of know what are your operating expenses, right? Like how much does it cost you to run your business, right? And so it is a good idea to to know that number, first of all, and then know, you know, how many clients do you need to see to break even? And then above that, it's like, okay, but how much profit do you want? How much, you know, more do you want in your business either to keep, to pay for taxes, right? You still have to pay taxes, but then also to reinvest into your business, right? So, you know, this has been such an incredible interview and I really just, you're definitely one of the top movers and shakers, I'd say, in the START program in terms of like hitting the ground running, starting fast, growing fast. And I'm just totally, you know, unbelievably impressed with what you've been able to do. Thank you so much. I'm also uh, shocked as well (laughs) by what happened. Yeah, but it happened also like you're clearly a very hard worker, right? Like you have a lot of experience. You're not afraid of hard work, right? Like two or three times you've mentioned obstacles that you've overcome, right? Like with the HR test that you did, right? You know, becoming a vendor, right? Like you're no stranger to working hard, right? And so as long as you're willing to do what you need to do, to get the outcome, like we can all figure this stuff out, right? Like very few SLPs and OTs have any kind of a business background, right? Like maybe they had a lemonade stand when they were a kid, right? But just like, <laughs> right? Like I had a lemonade stand when I was a kid with my cousin. And this is a funny story. I basically just, we also sold cookies. I basically wanted to eat all cookies, right? And <laughs> you ate all your, <laughs> I did. And, and he kept telling me that I was eating all the profits. And I had to say, ate all your profits. Yeah, I have no idea what he was talking about. I was just like, whatever, these are cookies and they're delicious. But anyway, (laughs) nonetheless, like, you know, most people don't have a business background in the same way that when you went to grad school to become an SLP or an OT, you didn't have a background in that either, right? So, I mean, maybe you had an undergrad background, but before you went to undergrad, you didn't have a background, right? So all of these skills can be learned, right? And so maybe they don't come quite as naturally to you as being a clinician does, But these are skills that you can absolutely learn and you have to learn in order to be able to have not just a private practice, but a successful private practice. I agree. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for sharing your story. And I cannot wait to see what happens in year two of your private practice. Me too. Thank you so much, Jenna. Thank you. Don't you just love Dr. Sandiford? I love her drive and what she's been able to build in a relatively short period of time. She is a perfect example of someone who had worked in a variety of settings and is now focused on opening her own private practice and is thriving. And for her, it all started in the Start Your Private Practice program. If you would like to know more about our programs and how we help support SLPs and OTs who want to start and grow their practices, please visit independentclinician.com. As always, thank you for listening and please tune in next week for another episode of the Private Practice Success Stories podcast. Well, this episode might be over, but we don't have to say goodbye head on over to independentclinician.com for resources that will help you at each stage of your private practice journey. If you're on Instagram, let's connect. Follow me and send me a DM. I'm at independentclinician. 
And if you're on Facebook, make sure that you join the SLP and OT Private Practice Beginners Facebook group. All right, off to help more regular SLPs and OTs become successful private practitioners. Let me know if I can help you too.